Welcome, welcome everyone to another episode of Gay Side Stories, where the gay shit goes, and in my case, it's where the gay shit goes to die. I am your host, Chalificent. Again, thank you for joining me for another week. You guys can listen to this show now on Pippa, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Acast, TuneIn, CastBox, or at GaySideStories.com slash shows. I don't know the fate of SoundCloud. We'll just have to see what happens. Remember to use the hashtag GaySidePod when you're live tweeting or posting about the show. I'm doing a gay culture series. So if you're interested in providing your thoughts on what gay culture is and what it means to you, please reach out via Twitter, email, or leave a voicemail. All of that information is in the show notes. Last thing before I introduce my guest, please take a little bit of time to do the audience survey. I know it's kind of long, but it does help me out with a lot of things. They do ask some good questions. Some of them are a little intrusive so if you want to skip some of them and it lets you go ahead but the link to the survey is bit.ly slash gay side survey that's b-i-t dot l-y slash gay side survey that link will also be in the show notes and it's on the website under the extras header and without further ado you've heard him clinking in the background i'm gonna let my guest introduce himself (laughs) sorry about that oops (laughs) <laughs> hi hi everybody my name is Verdell um happy to be on the show I'm glad that you're here I'm glad that you reached out I was I'm gonna be honest I was a little taken aback when you were in, showed your interest in being on the show I don't know why I still am like that but you were like hey I want to be on the show and then you listed all this stuff and I was like wow he's like really well-rounded and I am so trash but sure, come on through. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're you're not trash, of course not. Well, I mean, sure, <laughs> sure. But again, thank you for being a listener and supporting the show, and now being a guest. I, I'm really excited about this. Yeah, me too. I think it'll be fun. All right, so speaking of fun, let's get into the segments. First segment is the School and Life. Quick reminder, this is just something that I like to highlight that helped me and my guest, if they have something, get through the week. And the reason why I do this is because there is so much going on in the world and there are so many people that are struggling from day to day, myself included. So number one, I like to do it because it helps me remind myself that you have things to look forward to. You have things that are helping you get through the week. It's not just a, I'm struggling and dragging. Like you actually are doing things. And the other reason is because I feel like it might be inspirational to someone else. Maybe you hear it and you hear me say, I'm looking forward to hanging out with my friends. And it it reminds you, Hey, I haven't seen my friends in a long time. I should hang out with my friends and I'll have something to look forward to too. So that's why I like to do it really quick. So my school on life for this week is actually show related And it is looking at the analytics of the show. Now, I'm not really, really big on looking at the analytics, but because I switched over from SoundCloud to Pippa, Pippa does a lot better job of showing me the numbers and where people are listening. 
And so what really got me was they have this map and it shows where people are listening. So obviously most of the listeners are from the U.S., but it was pinging listeners from Ghana, from Kenya, the United Kingdom, Australia, France, India, Japan, Antigua and Barbuda, which I was like, what? <laughs> the Netherlands, Sweden, Canada. So first, I want to say thank you to anyone that is in any of these areas and any other area that I didn't mention for listening to the show. Um, and I would challenge you all to be a little bit more interactive and let me know where you're listening from. Tweet me and hey, we can we can talk. And I mean, I know I've kind of been on a little bit of a Twitter break except for my scheduled post. But if you at me and and I see it, I, I will see it eventually. I will respond or DM me or something like that. So that's my school in life. It's just. When I saw Ghana on the list, I was like, who the hell is listening to this show in Ghana? But hey, you know, teach You're international. You're international. Look at that. International, baby. So, Verdell, what's your school in life for this week? Well, uh, my school in life is the fact that I only have to work one day next week. (laughs) Look. (laughs) That is very exciting for me. Um, I realized that I had a bunch of days and that it's going to, you know, I want to use them sooner rather than later. And I was just like, you know what? I just had like this new mindset. I've been, you know, reading a couple of, well, maybe that that's part of my school in life too. I've been reading this really called, this really cool book um, called um, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Okay. And it basically talks about how to negotiate. Um. And it just was eye-opening just about how to talk to people and how to kind of get what you want out of things. He's like he's like a, a hostage negotiator for the FBI and talking uh-huh. about how to negotiate with people. And he does consulting with all these other businesses and whatnot. And it's just really, really eye-opening to read it and then to really hear. Because, like, I do comms work and stuff as well. So the things that he's saying I've employed in other places. But it's just like, oh, wow, duh, that makes full of sense to talk to people and acknowledging, you know, most of us, even if we like to say that we're rational, we really operate with emotions. And so you have to engage those realities and things like that. And so when reading that, I was like, oh, and I went to, you know, talk to my boss, which, you know, my boss is a pretty cool boss. But I never asked if I could take my days. I just said, okay, so here's when I'm, you know, I'm going to take my days. When is the best time for me to take them? And so I was like, okay, because uh, I, I thought about like, okay, like not the rational part because, you know, oh, well, these are mine. They belong to me. I can whatever I want. But I was like, okay, let's engage the emotion. If I make it feel like it's his decision that I can take the vacation, then I'm more likely to get most about all of what I want. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Come on, reverse psychology. Um, yeah, you make people feel like they're going to make the decision and then you get, usually get what you want. Um, and so... I mean, it's not like he probably wouldn't have said no anyway, but I was able to get it on such short notice. And it was even his idea about when to take them. Um, And so it was just confidence uh, for me to do it. And I think just everybody should take more priority and take care of themselves. Like, you know, these jobs don't really care about us. They just want their stuff done. And I mean, you know, you got to eat, got to pay your bills, you got to do stuff. But I think the biggest lesson that I've been really working on is that you really can't do anything if you're a mess. <laughs> and that's that is the whole truth of the matter. <laughs> like you can't do anything. You can't budget your money. You can't. You. I mean, there's so many little things that 
like the stuff that we tell people they need to do to get their lives together, you almost can't do it if you yourself are not together. Like if you're exhausted, if your health is out of whack, if you can't sleep, you can't go to the gym, you can't budget your money, you can't go grocery shopping. It's all all those other things that you don't take care of yourself. You can't do it. And so to me, I was like, I want to take my days. And so I took my days, and I don't have to go. To, I have to go to work on Monday, but then I want to be back until the following Tuesday. Yep. And then so yeah, take what you need to get what you need for yourself, and don't be and don't be afraid to not just ask for it, but negotiate for it. You know what? That is good advice. I like it. I like it. Well, I hope you guys learned something from that because I know I did. I'm like, let me take some notes because. <laughs> He's over here preaching a word right here, which apropos. So let's get, <laughs> let's get into the next segment, and that is the come quick segment. I'm gonna come, sir. Oh yeah. So first up, I come across this article, or came across this article. It says four men charged with hate crimes and beating of gay couple. And I chose this particular article because it it just goes back to what I've said on a couple of previous episodes that just because you see gay men on Instagram or on TV or doing things, you know, that doesn't mean that we're safe. Like it's still dangerous out here for gays. So I'll run down the um, the points of the article Four Florida men are now facing felony hate crime charges, and I'm not going to read their names because they, yeah. Footage from April 8th showed couple Renee uh, Charlacara and Dimitri, I'm not sure what his last name is, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) This is not funny though, being brutally beaten after the Miami Beach Gay Pride Festival. A bystander, Helmut Muller Estrada, attempted to protect the victims and was knocked unconscious and awoke in a pool of his own blood, according to reports. It says the suspects are between the ages of 20 and 21. They turned themselves in the following day after their faces were plastered on the news and social media. So not because they felt guilty for what they had done, but because they knew that the smackdown was going to come after they were all over social media. It says, during the assault, the men reportedly called the victims an anti-gay slur in Spanish. And with the new charges, the men each face up to 30 years in prison. And so when I read this article, the first thought that I had was, I wonder if they'll try to enact a quote-unquote gay panic defense. I wonder if they'll say, oh, they were trying to hit on us or something of that nature. Because as I read on a previous episode a lot of uh what do you want to call them people in these situations where they perpetrate hate against someone they use that defense to try to lessen the charges because it's like oh i'm sure somebody or probably multiple people on the jury will be able to relate to the thought that gay men throw themselves at people and i had to protect myself from that which is funny because when it's a when it's a woman saying that against a man is oh what what did she do? But anyway, that was my initial thought, and my second thought is I hope they get convicted and I hope they go to jail for as long as possible because this is ridiculous in 2018. Like we can't even go to 
the spaces that we've created for ourselves and be safe. We can't go to that space and go home. We can't be in love and hold hands with the person, which we know how, you know, the stereotypes and the thoughts about finding love as a gay man. So you have two that have done that. They're holding hands after going to the pride festival and they get beat up. And then someone else tries to step in like, hey, don't do that. And you knock him unconscious. It's crazy. It's just crazy. Like there's just no regard for life. I don't, I don't get that. I don't, I don't get how people just, how they can grow up and navigate the world with no regard to human life. I mean, I kind of can. I don't know what that says about me (laughs) 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 or or my experiences at, at that. But I think that, I mean, plenty of us are, are taught, like it's never directly said, but plenty, like we're often taught that some people are a little less human than us, which means they kind of deserve what they get. Um, it's never said blatantly, but in the, how some people are allowed to be treated over others, um, it's, it's clear. And I think at least the thing that popped up in my mind when you're talking about the story is how a lot of gay people in urban areas some often forget that the way it is in like an ATL or a DC or whatever that that's not normal you know like in DC I can know where I can go I have these normal little spots and though like I said those spots aren't safe either just to be to be frank but you know every every place isn't this super gay friendly you know place actually most places still aren't and even the gay-friendly places really aren't. Like, I can remember even in D.C., you know, coming somewhere uh, going, coming somewhere with, with my boyfriend at one point and being on the escalator. Like, we weren't even holding hands, but like, we were, you know, the way we were talking in position, it was, uh, you know how we look at people, you can tell, like, okay, they're on a date or something. Yeah. It's something like that, and you could just, you know, I got a couple of looks, or, you know, in Chinatown every spring, like clockwork, the um, Hebrew-Israelites are out there, you know, um, looking like, you know, they're having a probate or something and they're yelling all the scriptures and the gays and the fags are going to hell or whatever. And so just this idea that, you know, because we have a couple of characters on TV and there's some prominent ones. And so, yes, things are there. There are ways that things have progressed. However, in everyday actual life, it's still treacherous for a lot of people. Exactly. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, even in, in the midst of of the, and I don't I don't want to be dismissive of advances, but a lot of the representative victories that we might have had, they're great, they're awesome. You know, the fact that now, you know, a gay kid, a trans kid, can see perhaps something on TV that that reminds them of themselves. That's really great. But there's so many people who don't get that, who for every good thing they see on TV or hear on the radio, they get a thousand other things that bring their life, you know, almost to an end. And I think that just, um, hopefully people will start paying more attention to those things. Yep. So as I said before, it's part of the reason why I highlight stories like this. And I agree with everything that you said. So the next article says Vermont lawmakers pass gender neutral bathroom bill to send quote unquote powerful message. So we'll balance the not so great story with something a little bit better. 
So Vermont Republican Governor Phil Scott signed H.333 after it was passed unanimously by the state Senate, which, oh, wow, that's surprising. That's and, amazing. <laughs> right. By an overwhelming majority in the House. The measure will take effect on July 1st. The law mandates that all single-user bathrooms in public buildings and places of public accommodations, such as schools, restaurants, and workplaces, be identified as gender-free. The law does not apply to bathrooms with more than one toilet, which, obviously. Supporters suggested the law sends a pointed message, given the Trump administration's rescinding last year of protections for transgender students to use bathrooms that correspond with their gender identity. House Speaker Mitzi Johnson, Democrat, said in a statement, quote, too many states are put passing bathroom bills that move in the wrong direction, discriminating against LGBTQIA individuals and forcing school children to use the bathroom that corresponds with their gender at birth, not their chosen gender identity. In a time where LGBTQIA rights are being rolled back on the federal level, when the Trump administration isn't protecting children, it is our duty to step in. And I really liked that quote by that uh, House Speaker because it's just something that has been on my mind a lot. Um, and a lot of the policies that have been coming out of this administration are not even really policies it's just a lot of rollbacks i'm like what is this walmart like y'all rolling back everything like (laughs) why why do you arbitrarily need to roll back protection for transgender people the little protection that they have so i thought that this was uh something very good to highlight shout out to vermont and the lawmakers again it was very surprising that the entire senate and probably most of the house all were on board with this bill yeah that's really good um i think well one this is is a great thing it's really really good um it's interesting how when you bring this topic up um my and some of the things i've done in the past it's just interesting when you talk about bathrooms it's something that people take for granted mm-hmm. particularly that if, they, if it's no issue for them um, and to talk about how and to demonstrate for people how that's such a like you need a bathroom <laughs> like yeah, it's something like it's, that you can't it's, it's you know necessary. like you know and 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 how many like when I taught um, in my communications classes and we would have a communication and gender piece I would always bring this up and at this particular time um you know, the bathroom bills, I think it was in North Carolina was, was, you know, um, was all in the news. And so we talked about it. And so to my students, even though like it wasn't specifically like a gender or whatever class, I brought that stuff in to expose them to it. And so when we talked about it and some of my students kind of like, well, I don't really know about this. I was like, well, think about it. The bathroom in your house, do you, is it gender neutral? And they said, no. I said, yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) And, And then they would be like, well, what do you mean? I said, do you have a bathroom for men and women separately in, you know, and they're like, mm, if you have more than one, if you have only one bathroom in your house, everybody uses it, right? And they said, well, yeah. And I said, okay. And if you have more than one, is are they labeled? Do only the men use the one and the women use the other? No. Okay. Think about when you're at family reunion, 
all those people who you really don't know, you all use the similar bathrooms, don't you? Yeah. Well, then why? (laughs) You know, like just to make them think about why they have an aversion to something and say, okay, you have an aversion, but it's not why you think it is. Let's talk about what it actually is. Um, And so to get people to see differently. And I hope, and actually, and and in my experience, honestly, a lot of gay men really need (laughs) some help with understanding gender. Um, And so they, like a lot of us don't, well, many of us don't quite get it either. And we kind of fit into very, very, I mean, I get it. It's, it's all that we know. And so, you know, okay. So you come to church with the fact that, okay, you know, you, you, you like men. Okay, fine. Or you like the same gender. Okay, fine. But you don't really deal with the other stuff, the other insinuations you have about men and how men should be and how you are compared to that. Um, and so I just would hope that situations like this would help everybody, including more gay men to really think about gender how they may think of it in a way that's harmful to even to them, themselves and to other people, mm-hmm. um, you know, try to make stuff a little bit better. Yeah, I agree. And look at shout out to you for educating the masses or at least a small sliver of them because <laughs> just a few, <laughs> you know, it's just people don't take the, a lot of people I would say they don't take the time to educate themselves on things. And it, it goes back to something that I said on a previous episode about having opinions and not having any factual basis. And this is one of those things where it's like you need to know what it is that you are talking about and having an opinion on before you start blurting out what your opinion is. Or just even if you're not blurting it out, like at least know the facts when you make that opinion. Because if you know them, Especially in this instance and the way that you presented it, it's pretty easy to be like, okay, I get it. It's not really a big deal. And again, it's the bathroom. It is the bathroom. We all have to go. It doesn't matter what your gender or what your sexuality or whatever else you have going on, your race. Mother nature does not play with anybody. When she calls, you answer. It doesn't matter what you have going on. She don't do call waiting. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think it goes back to um, what we were just talking about before, about, yeah, it's logic and being rational, but it's also emotion. Yeah. And so a lot of things about gender we hold to because it's how we view ourselves in the world to be. And so if you view yourself, let's say if you're a gay dude and you think that the fact that you're mask and you wear your Jordans and your fitted cat and you know you you go to the gym whatever and so that that makes you better than the other gays right because you're not like those other folks over there then it doesn't matter how many facts i present to you your sense of self is wrapped up in that and so i can show you a flow chart from here to the end of the united states if who you feel yourself to be your sense of self is wrapped up in this idea of what a man should be until you deal with those emotions and those feelings it's not gonna matter Um, And I think that's what I've realized that you can attach it to, okay, you can't just drop facts in people's laps because facts in and of themselves, I mean, and studies have shown that, like facts don't change people's minds. You have to deal with the emotions. That's why it's, it's not common if you see like some type of conservative person or whatever, when they change their mind, it's because someone close to them is in a certain experience or has a certain situation. Because now it's emotions involved. It's not sheer raw facts. It's like, oh, well, wait a minute. 
I was against the trans bill, but now that, you know, this person that I love dearly is trans, now, wait a minute, I got to think about this differently because now they're hitting their emotions and their feelings. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know what? That's a, that's a good point. And I would agree, but I'm going to also highlight that it is sad that there are so many people that can't see the humanity in others unless it's somebody close to them. And I think we'll just leave it at that because we can get into a whole different topic just on this. But um, shout out yeah. to Vermont. Yeah, and shout out to them. Copy Everybody copy off of them. Yes, Do please. That. Yes, I mean, I know it's wishful thinking in this raggedy state, but uh, maybe one day in my lifetime, Texas will get her act together. Maybe. So with that, we're going to transition over to the main topic. So I'm really excited about this because I've had this in my notes for a while. And so when you approached me and you had these like credentials, I was like, Oh, Oh my. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But I was excited because, you know, as I said, I've been wanting to talk about this. So we're going to talk about religion and how it affects, relates to sexuality and whatnot um so a part of this is going to be a little bit of a different conversation it's going to be more of an interview because there are specific things and experiences that you have that i want you to talk about or that you want to talk about so let's do that so let's start with religion uh why don't you talk about your theological education and research Okay, sure. So um, my undergrad, um, I went to Rutgers University in New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey, by the way, the Jersey Shore. Okay. Um, And so I went to Rutgers University. Um, My minor was in religion. And at the time, I was really heavily involved in, like, on-campus Christian ministry. I joined a Christian fraternity, you know, all the, you know, dotted all the Christian I's and dotted all the Christian T's. Um, But oddly enough, I you know, did a minor in religion. And in that minor, um, um, this, is, this is the part that I think a lot of people sometimes be confused, that when you study religion in an academic situation, it's really not like going to church and having Bible study. You're going and you're learning, you're treating the what you're learning about, whatever religion you're learning about, as like you were learning architecture or English or math, right? And so you might talk about the implications of faith, but they're not assuming like it's not like Bible study at church where you're learning a lesson to be like, you know, to go pray about it and impact your life in a positive way. Um, it's about talking about what we know about the text, what we know about the people who wrote it, what we know about the time, things, things that, you, that you would do in any other situation. Right. And so I was taking classes like, you know, I took a class that was literally just called Jesus. Um, and <laughs> on the one hand, that might make somebody really excited. But what we really did was talk about just things about, like, what do we actually know about Jesus, right? The person. And the reality is we know very little, very little. Um, in fact, I mean, the we only, I mean, it, it would be a toss-up if he actually visited, if it weren't for, like, a couple of little throwaway lines or some historical documents, um, that kind of point to the fact that, oh, the fact that they could mention Jesus, they, they were talking about his brother, James, 
and the fact that they could talk about James, the brother of Jesus, so easily, the fact that everybody knew who that was, meant that, okay, this person more than likely really did exist. But Jesus, contrary to how we think, really wasn't that important when he was alive. Um, and so he was just a nobody. And so it's like people who are nobodies, when you don't have any type of way to record things, no, they don't get remembered unless somebody, you know, they do something extraordinary. So um, I took that after graduating, um, wanted to go more into ministry, and I eventually ended up at Howard University School of Divinity. Um, did not know what I was getting myself into, but I loved it. Okay. Um, but I did not realize, because I did not grow up in church, that what I was learning in divinity school really wasn't what they were doing in church. And so I would try to bring what I was learning in school when I would go to church, and I'd be wondering, well, why is everybody looking at me so weird, looking at me so funny? Or we'll be in, like, small group talking about, I don't know, the Exodus story, and I'll just be like, oh, well, you know, there's some type, there's several theories on how the Israelites really emerged, and they're all like, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean? And just, I didn't realize, I didn't understand that the difference between what happens in church and then what happens in like a divinity school. Right. Um, Cause to me, they were like, it was cool to me. Um, and then just going through all of that, going through churches and whatever, um, you know, eventually I wanted to do more academic work cause I saw myself, you know, getting toward a PhD. And it was, it was a time period when everybody was trying to get a PhD. Um, so people were like being told no. A lot of my professors were like, oh, no, you actually can write well and do well, so you should try. And so I actually, for some reason, <laughs> went and um, got another master's in theological study. And so I did a lot of research on what they'd call prophetic preaching. And I don't mean like prophetic, like Miss Cleo, TBN, you're going to get a car tomorrow type prophetic. I mean like um, Martin Luther King, um, James Cone, Howard Thurman type of pro prophetic preaching. Um speaking to powerful people about justice or whatever. And a lot of, um, of, of white Christian culture. Um, a lot of what we're talking about, like with Donald Trump and, and Christians today, um, is stuff that I studied years ago and actually predicted. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> but everybody thought I was a little bit too much. Um, I think um, I would say about just like, no, they don't really care about life. They don't really care about people. They just want to win. Yeah. Um, and they don't really care about you. Um, I use, um, I don't know if you heard of this, but it's a charity called World Vision. And when they were, they sponsor children in Africa and all that other stuff, which is already to me a problem, but that's another conversation. But, yeah. um, you know, they were changing their policies um, to have workers in same-sex relationships to honor you know, their spouses with, you know, like if you're married and you have insurance, they have insurance, you know, just doing that basic thing. And so people began to withdraw their donations and droves. Oh my. And so I said, yeah, you all. And, and even today I say, it's like, I don't like to be one of those people who are like, oh, well, why are you mad? You shouldn't be mad. Why are you mad about? I don't like to be one of those people. I do think though, at some point it's like, they were willing to let children starve because Susan and Mandy wanted to get married. They were willing to let children starve. Yeah. So why do you think that anything is a, is beneath these people? They're showing. They've already showed you countless times. <laughs> you know what I mean? Who they are? <laughs> they've shown exactly who they are. Yeah. But um, throughout my time in 
in grad school, all that I studied, you know, like some of my favorite things to study were like Jesus in the temple, um, white Christian culture. Now, I'm, I can never say this word straight. I think I have a speech impediment. Evangelical culture. I was studying that really heavily. And you've heard that word in the news all the time. Yeah. I can never say it without like pausing because it's just, I don't know, for whatever reason. <laughs> I have to like pause and breathe and say it. It's but fine. I said, that's, but I, <laughs> that's how I am with names that I'm not familiar with, like I did earlier. So it's fine. It's, it's fine. just so funny. It's like it's on my resume and I studied this and I can't say it. But <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. But, um, but yeah, that I studied that. Um, a lot of progressive theology that I've studied and been involved in, also a lot of religious organizing and advocacy work. Um, I was involved. Um, you can probably search some of this stuff. Like I was involved to help create, um, you know, some advocacy um, initiatives around uh, uh, black Christians and sexuality and uh, purity culture, things like that. Okay. So talk a little bit about your experience as a minister. Ooh, okay. Um, hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> I have to preface it by saying this. I think it's a also a unique experience being an out um, for the time I was a minister, being an, an out openly gay minister, because I think that there's a unique complexity there that I think gets lost. Oh, yes, um, I agree. I think, one, I will say that I have met some wonderful people who really do take their title as minister, as clergy, very seriously. I know a lot of them, and they really are trying to do their best. And a good amount of people actually are trying to do their best with what they know. Um, and so the idea about, like, I usually get annoyed when people have the idea of every preacher as this money-grubbing prosperity preacher, because most preachers aren't like that. Um, the average pastor doesn't probably doesn't make more than $30,000 a year. Um, and so the idea that, oh, it's a preacher, they're automatically whatever. While I could understand people having their reservations about preachers, certainly, absolutely, the idea that everybody's trying to get a buck most of them are broke. They just look expensive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just to be honest. But with that said, um, you know, it, it could be a very thankless job and a very difficult job. Um, I think particularly, again, like I said, being an out, you know, an out gay minister, I had to do a lot more to prove myself than people who were either closeted or presumed straight. Um, that could get away with doing and being almost anything. And I had to dot all of my I's and cross all of my T's as well as somebody else's Yeah. Um, just to get a look. Um, and I think that's the truth for a good number of, of, um, of queer clergy. And I'm using this as an, as a overall, like any, like most of the trans and gay and bi clergy that are out that I know, um, we're overworked, underpaid, um, we have to do a whole lot more, and usually we're better preachers. Just to be totally honest, come on and talk uh, your ish. <laughs> just I'm just being real. Like most of, it's difficult because you have to do so much more, and then particularly if you're in certain spaces, um, you can get paraded as, oh well, you're the token, and everyone is like, oh well, yeah, we have to be better to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. But then when the men's day comes up, you don't get invited. When the job opportunity comes up, your name isn't floated across. Um, they'll like your picture when it's when it's Pride Weekend, but when it's really time to stand up, no one really does. Um, 
And so it could be a very thankless, very lonely job. Um, I think for me, like every time someone talks about wanting to get involved in the ministry, whereas I ask them what they mean by that. And if you just mean general service to people to make them better, you can do that anywhere. You can be that anywhere. But if you want to be a preacher, what do you plan on doing to make sure that you eat? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so just to be honest about it, how are you going to make sure that you eat? Um, seminary is, at this point, I mean, as much as I love my theological education, I mean, it's almost criminal how expensive it is. And you have to get into all this, you know, spend all this money to get into all this debt to hopefully get a job that will barely pay you 50000 with a couple of benefits. Like, it's just not a sweet deal. Like, to, it's it's... It's borderline criminal, in my opinion, but just, you know, because when people believe that they're called by God, you can get them to do almost anything. And so if you come to the, you're coming to say, oh, I feel like I'm called by God, you're going to be willing to take on debt. You're going to be willing to go without health insurance because you think that God has called you and that God's going to protect you. And, well, that doesn't really happen too often. Um, just talking about just, just the reality. Um it's, I think, also to be fair, because of my position to the faith and the profession at this point, that's where some of my feelings come from. And so I try to be honest about it, but I think being fair, but then being honest about what I've experienced. And it's just, I, I miss the preaching. I miss that. I miss interacting with people on the everyday points of their life, those things that I miss. But I don't miss having to always defend myself or to be critiqued harshly because I won't anyone run over me because I'm out and because I'm preaching. I don't, I'm tired of having to defend my credentials, which usually I have more than the people who are coming at me. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, at some point, but I wasn't getting a benefit to my life. The, the output that I was putting toward it wasn't equaling what I was getting out of it. You know, that's very honest and very real. And I'm glad that you said that. So let's switch gears a little bit. And you mentioned outreach and you mentioned just now about if you just want to be of service to people that you can do it at almost anywhere. So talk a little bit about your advocacy work. Well, um, I kind of stumbled onto it by accident. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> it just happened. Um, it was because I guess I saw many things in life happen when it seemed that way. Um, I started getting in like when I started being more um getting involved in more progressive religious work um, toward, I would say, the tail end of my time at Wesley. Um, And I would get involved with an organization called Uh, Many Voices. Um, It's an organization that works on producing resources and materials to advance inclusion in the black church. So it's a good place to check out, Many Voices, um, if if you're interested in that. Um, but I started doing some stuff with them. And because of my writing and communications background, got involved in doing some advocacy work because um, of also my preaching background, um, started getting invites, like things like panels and such. And then eventually I started doing some work with some justice organizations and started, uh, there are a number of justice organizations that are, that are attempting to work with religious folks um, to curtail some of the really bad religion that we have going on in the United States today. And so working with them, um, working on issues, everything from uh, immigration rights to um, economic um, e- economic um, issues, anti-racism, of course, LGBTQ inclusion. Um, the cool part is just to really be able to see how religion really touches all of these areas. Mm-hmm. Like if you're, if you're an atheist who wants an abortion, 
in a state where you can't because the religious right and everybody else got all the clinics shut down, you're impacted by faith even though you don't believe. And so I think it's something that's really, really important for people to understand, like religion, not just as something that, oh, those folk do over there, but religion is such a uniquely human thing that you really can't avoid it. At all. Right? Like, you can't avoid it. Like, you don't have to personally believe it. Like, it's not just something that you believe or don't believe. It's it's something that humans do. Even, like, people at, you know, remember the in Michael Jackson concerts, people falling out? That's religion. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, a religious... Ex- I, yeah, I get what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it doesn't... And, like, doesn't mean that, that, that there's not a scientific way to explain that. So I'm not saying, like, he has like, like, supernatural power. But that experience, or being at a baseball game... Or if somebody hits that right high note, and you know, and you feel a way about it, those are things that people interpret religiously. And so, even if you yourself aren't religious, like, oh, I don't go to church, I don't go to church, I don't pray. Being religious in some way is like a human quirk. Nobody else does this but us, you know. And different species of humans too um, do it. This, the, you know, have done it. Um, but it's something that humans do, so you can't really get away from it. So that's what my advocacy experience. Um, really helped me to see how you can organize and gather religious people together to undo some of the harm that's been done. Okay. I like that. I like that. So let's switch a little bit and we'll get a dive a little bit more into, I guess, specific religious things. Let's talk a little bit about the Bible. So what are your favorite stories from the Bible? Um. Okay. Well, I think my all-time favorite story from the Bible is when Jesus goes into the temple with a whip and flips over the tables and chases everybody out. (laughs) That's my favorite story. And I actually did research on this at Howard. Um, The reason why is because I think we always skip over it. Like, we know it's there, but we don't talk about it because Jesus is supposed to be this really nice, nonviolent guy, Right. Right. And so the way it's set up, Jesus, like if you when you research what the temple actually served, it was basically like a public square, a church, a bank and a city hall all in one. Right. So that's really what the temple was. And people from Jesus part of the uh, neck of the woods, they were angry at the folks in the temple anyway. And so they were like soldiers all around. And so imagine, like, let's say this big old church slash city hall slash bank in the center hall with police all around. And here comes this dude off the street who looks like he slept on the street, you know, and his merry band of poor people mm-hmm. <laughs> with this whip staging a protest to the point where people are running and fleeing. And this is a very busy. This is like a busy place um, during the busiest time of the year. So imagine like Saturday night. Imagine Saturday afternoon at the mall during Christmas. And that's how this place was, kind of, right? And so this man comes in and his band of, of, of people who so vigorously protest in the temple with by throwing over tables and stuff that they have to flee and hide, <laughs> right? right? And so this could not just be some little very kind, pleasant protests oh no stop doing what you're doing oh please stop this is wrong there had to be some serious shit going on here just to be honest and 
that's what ultimately gets Jesus arrested and killed. Like nobody cared about Jesus until he did this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing for me that that makes Jesus interesting. Right. That memorable act that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, because he wasn't. And it's something that, again, it's not really. No one really talks about this outside of academic circles, which is really bad in my opinion. But Jesus was one of many, many people who were considered a Messiah. And actually, there are people who, who, who did a way better job than he did when he was alive, who were much better, much more well-known, much more popular, um, you know, than Jesus when he was alive. Like he, and by all accounts, he failed. The Messiah was not supposed to be arrested and killed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, but this is the event that put, like, no one really cared about a Jewish guy talking to poor people it was this event staging a coup almost if you will on the epicenter of the society that got him on rome's radar and which to the point where they wanted to find him and kill him and so you just can't be this little nice meek mild little person if you like if you and your crew are ballsy enough to disrupt a place like that to the point when they come find you, you pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Somehow, some way. And to me, and, and I think the other point about that story for me is that Jesus was caring. Jesus cared about people's money. And I think that's why it's important to me because of how they were swindling people for their money. Right. And, and so that's why, and I think another thing that we overlook too, just the fact that Jesus cared about people having resources that they deserve, that they need it, um, and how all that kind of ties into that one story. So um, that's one. (laughs) Um, My other story that I like, I think I would say is my favorite, is I would say The Flood. Okay. Um, Because I think it's a great example of myth. Uh Um, And because there are several cultures... There are numerous cultures in the ancient Near East that have similar stories, almost to the letter. And there were two rivers, that big rivers that ran through this area. I forgot their names. I, I don't want to misquote them, so I won't even try to remember them. But one of the, they, they, they seasonally overflowed. One, you could predict when it was going to overflow so that people could do whatever they needed to do. But the other one, they couldn't predict. And they were they wrote about it and how people drowned. People lost property. And to them, this was the end of the world. And so telling a myth about a flood and God wiping everything away, you know, it makes sense when you have a people who don't understand how weather works. Yes. They don't know how rivers work like mm-hmm. that, you know. And so what they do is they make up a story to explain because well, think about it, if you, I mean, even plus today, if you have a house and it's flooded, everything is gone, you have to start from scratch. It's like your world is starting over from scratch, right? Right. And so that's how they wrote, that's how they dealt with it. They wrote a story about how, you know, the world ends and maybe God is mad at us because God is drowning us and we have to start over again if we don't know those are these waters. And to me, it just shows how a very human way of dealing with things that we don't know but have to live with. So to to me, yeah, those would be my two stories. Okay. Uh, I admittedly have never read through the Bible in its entirety, so I don't have a favorite story. So we're going to just move on to the next. Most people haven't. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get there. We'll get there. (laughs) So let's talk about favorite Bible quotes, because I do have a couple of those. 
Oh. Mm, I would say my one of my favorites is I'm I'm paraphrasing, but it's in Philippians and Paul writes, um, I know how to do with a little, I know how to do with a lot, but in all things I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, that's one of mine. So, but I have a different reason because obviously, like I said, I didn't read the whole Bible. But well, when I was <clears throat> trying to do religion, uh, I used to go to a church here in Houston, and um, that quote would be how they ended every service. And it was like, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And now that I think about it, it kind of make me feel, it kind of gives me like planetary vibes. But anyway. Yeah, I was thinking, I was like, wait, is that like, you know, like, is that like a sporting event type of? Yeah, it, it, yeah. At the time, I was like, okay, you know, this gets, it gets the people hype. It gets, it gets the people going. But looking back on it, I'm like, yeah, it was a little bit cheerleaderish. Um, So do you have another um, well, the ones I usually like, and I like them because people usually use them wrong, and so I end up liking <laughs> the actual meaning, and it's just like that one. I think most people take that verse to mean you can do anything, but if you read the verse in context, like, Paul has a very specific thing that he's talking about, uh-huh. and he's like, I know, he's basically saying, I know how to endure through what, what life brings my way. Not that he beats everything, but, you know, he's shipwrecked, he's abandoned, he's alone, he's hungry, he's sick. And I get through it. I endure it. Not that he's victorious in it all, per se, but it's like, how do I get through? Because of Christ, you know, some something on the inside that he has that gets right. him through that thing. Um, not that it's not a I can do anything because I prayed today, which is what most people use it as. Um, <laughs> that's not even what he meant. But I think the Ooh. other one that um, what else? Um Oh, I think my favorite, other favorite one is, I believe it's in Amos. I think it's Amos, but basically God is talking in Amos and he's basically saying how he doesn't like church. Like you say, he basically he hates their festivals. He hates their gatherings. He hates their songs. All of it, he hates it, but rather he wants justice like a rolling stream. It's something that um, Martin Luther King quoted. And I like that because God is basically saying, you know, I hate church you all get together and you sing and you give me offerings and whatever i hate it all what i really want is for you to treat people right that's what i want yeah. and to me i mean again it's right in there yeah but you it's in the text it's in the like, text <laughs> you hear the end part but you never hear the part going before it because i mean what fun is that saying that god hates church right um <laughs> right. but but yeah, i mean i like that a lot because it just when i read it, it was like oh wow you know, God is saying, and this is something that God had said, you know, have this festival, have this feast, sing these songs, do these dances or whatever for me. And the very thing that God told them to do, God is like, oh, I hate it. I hate it all. This is all whatever. It's not what I really want. Yeah. 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 Woo. Okay. Um, my other favorite Bible quote is a passage from Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 40 verses 28 to 31. And that's the passage a lot of people may recognize that ends where it's like, uh, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and yeah. mount up with wings as eagles. Mm-hmm. I know that one very well. Et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so I don't have a, I don't have a personal connection to this Bible quote. The reason why I love it is because my grandmother loved it. 
and my grandmother passed at a very early age. I want to say she was like in her mid fifties when mm-hmm. I was in high school, and I'll never forget. I didn't realize that it had been imprinted upon me until after she passed. And my mom was my mom and my aunts and everyone was really stressed. They were trying to plan the funeral and they wanted to put the quote in uh, what do you call it? The um, in the little booklet. I can't remember what it's called, but they couldn't remember the quote. And so my mom, I mean, she was just going, you know, practically pulling her hair out. And I'm like, what is the issue? And she's like, I want, you know, I want to put this quote in there, but I cannot remember the verse. And I was like, oh, it's just Isaiah, blah, 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 blah. She looked at me like, the hell? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I mean, I be paying attention sometimes like dang." (laughs) So that that set of verses is probably my favorite just because it reminds me of my grandmother that, you know, I feel like I lost way too soon. Um. So, speaking of reading the Bible, mm-hmm. you posed this, and so I want you to go into a little bit of detail. Not too, too much, because you are, I feel like you're already shaking the table, but people are just going to have to deal with it. Really? <laughs> well, because right. I know enough religious people that they don't allow a lot of room for some of the things that you've been saying. It's kind of like, it is what it is, like, I believe, and there's no space for an academic view. Mm-hmm. So I could see people kind of being flustered by some of the things that you were saying. So what's something that most people who read the Bible don't realize? Oh, and you're right about that, by the way. Sometimes I just, cause it's such a part of what I do. It's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I yeah. That's why I said that. Cause I was like, you, I, was, I could tell by the way it was just flowing from you. So naturally I'm like, it's second nature for you. But a lot of people probably listen to that like, I know he didn't just say Jesus was a nobody. So. You know what the funny thing is, though? Like, the Bible says Jesus was a nobody, too. Well, but again, so that's why we have this question. So what do, so that's one thing that people don't realize who read the Bible. We'll, well, we'll put that in there. Well, I think a couple things. One, just that people actually don't really read. We're kind of told what's in there. And it's like, it's never like you read it and then you say, oh, that's what's here. We're told what it says and then showed one line. And then we said, hey, this is what it says. See here, right here, here's what it says right here. Um, so it's like we read with an idea of what it already says before we open the book anyway. Right. Um, but I think the one thing that people really don't realize is that this book was not written by people who think like us. Woo. Um, and so because of that, it is very difficult to take what they say and apply it to today. Now, of course, there are some things that are like evergreen, like, you know, be nice to people. Be nice. To, which, funnily you know, enough, is the part that people don't take to heart. They'll you know, take like, a lot of the stuff from the Bible, literally. But the parts where it's like, just be nice and charitable. People are like, nope. Nope. Yeah, it's like, give, like the, the things that if you read honestly, like... One of the, like, being good to, like, and it's very specific, like, being good to poor people, like, choosing to be poor with poor people, being on the side of poor people and advocating for them is one of the things that goes all the way through the text from the beginning to the end. But that's something that's debatable, which is hilarious to me. But, and sad. 
But it's just the idea that these, it's a truly a lack of understanding of how these people thought, like the way that we use their writings, if they could come to today, they would be totally confused. Like, what do you mean? Yeah. Like the fact that somebody, the fact that we think that Genesis is a scientific account of how the world was made, people didn't, like, even our idea of science didn't exist until about 250, 300 years ago, right? Yeah. And so... If you read, I mean, this is also the problem of when you translate something, right? Yeah. Um, Genesis was written in Hebrew. And if you read it in Hebrew, it's obvious that this is a poem. And the numbers are supposed to correspond. Like, it, it's, it's Hebrew poetry. It's not obvious in English because English kind of takes all that fun stuff out when you translate it. But they weren't trying to make a scientific proof about how the world came to be. They were just using poetry and imagery that everybody in during the time and in that part of the world would use to describe how the world came to be it wasn't meant to be some scientific exercise they weren't thinking that way and so when we use it for that it's like oh that's not really what they meant so you missed the point if your point is that oh look at what god can do in a week you're missing the point of what they actually were trying to communicate Right. But it's but it's hard to know that because, again, no one – this is the part where it's about being fair. It's like you don't hear this stuff in church. No one – I wouldn't have heard most of this if I didn't, you know, go to school like I did. Um, I think people should be – share and be more honest about that stuff because it's not like it's – people say that people wouldn't understand it. It's like, no, they would get it. You're, they just – would learn to think for themselves and they wouldn't need you anymore. That's mm-hmm. really the problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's like the idea that it's either just that people either think that either it's all true or it's all a lie. And neither one of those categories really works well for the Bible because neither one of those things is what they were trying to achieve. Um, it's like reading somebody else's mail, but you only get one piece. And... It's from 1920 or something to that extent. It's like they weren't talking to you. They weren't talking about you. And so it's going to come a point where much of what they're saying really doesn't have anything to do with you. And so that's when you begin to make the text mean things that it doesn't really mean, right. which sometimes can be harmless, right? Yeah, but Other sometimes time- it can be damaging because I think a lot of people use the text as a weapon. And that's where I think it kind of gets, what's the word, funny. Because I can imagine the people who wrote it looking at modern days like, I I didn't write this so that you could beat somebody over the head with it. Well, uh, see, that's the thing. It's this is this is just from, from my perspective. It's like the Bible is really a collection of documents. Like, it's not like a novel that you read from beginning to end. Like, these... The 66, you know, at least in the Protestant Bible, the 66 books that are in there were written by all types of people ranging across thousands of years, um, hundreds of miles. Like these, they didn't all get into a room and say, oh, what are you going to write? Oh, what am I going to write? Oh, you write this. I'll write that. Uh These, You know, and so there are things in there that are wildly contradictory. And so the same guy, (laughs) you know, but that's the thing is like it's. You have to understand who the people were, when they were writing, what they were writing for. It doesn't mean it's totally useless. It's just that the reason why most of us will use it 
is like that's not really how you're gonna get the most out of it. if you're gonna use it at all. Right. It's not how you get the most out of it because you know, let's say a perfect example, you know, Isaiah talking about um, you know, by his stripes we are healed. And we just assume that that's talking about Jesus, but no, they weren't thinking about Jesus. They were thinking about something totally different in the life and history of Israel, right? But because of what we already know and think about Jesus, then, oh, yeah, it must be about Jesus, stuff like that. And so um, just the fact that these people had their own motivations, their own way of seeing the world, their own way, their own goals, and that you, like you said, some, you know, some, once in a while, sometimes it doesn't matter. And I see plenty of things where it's like, okay, yeah, that, that's nice, but that, that doesn't really mean anything. But if that makes you get up in the morning, fine, whatever. But there are plenty of other things where it's like, no, you're really thinking something really crappy because of what you're reading in this text. And you don't even know why it's there. And that's the scary part. Indeed. So let's switch gears again. And we'll talk a little bit more about your personal journey rather than the actual religious aspect. So you've mentioned multiple times that you were an out and proud minister. What was that journey like reconciling your sexuality with your faith if you had one? Um, You know, it was definitely a journey. I felt kind of dragged along that journey more so than anything. Um, I remember at Howard having a class with a very, very, you know, and I went to Howard around the time in D.C. where same-sex marriage was being contested in D.C. and in Maryland. Um, and so this this was a rocky time. You know, we had protesters in front of the school, and the, the um, students would be arguing every other day, and... Um, professors took their own sides. It was just, it was quite something, to say the least. But in this class, um, we had a professor that really challenged us on our views. And at the time, it felt very uncomfortable because I wasn't comfortable with myself. But looking back, I'm happy that she did it because what she, and she made a lot of people who were either against, you know, um, who, who were either very homophobic or, or on the fence, she really put it in a way that made us look at the human damage that you couldn't escape it. And I really appreciated that because usually how, at least up until that point in my experience, it was always discussed about how basically you're mean, be nice. But the, <laughs> but the way she presented it was like, no, people are being hurt. People are dying because of these ideas. And that was really helpful for me. Um, as I moved along, like, I didn't really have much help. I kind of went this really rigorous, <laughs> like, self-experimental route where I just stayed to myself. I didn't really talk much about my struggles, quote-unquote, and, and, and what was going on with me because I wanted it to fully be my decision, right? right. I wanted it to be something that – because I understood that if it was something about me that was true, what the implications would have been – and I wanted to be able to own them and not say that I was influenced by this dude I was dating or this job opportunity. I didn't want any of that. I wanted to be because I realized it for myself. Um, and at that time, I was at one point I started going to this um, prominent A&E church here in the area. Loved it. But I remember one of the pastors making like this homophobic joke and not like some really blatant gross one, but he was talking about how he's on the basketball court or whatever. And some dude came with the whisper in his ear and how he wasn't with any of that funny stuff. And everybody laughed. 
everybody in the congregation was laughing. People on the pulpit were laughing. And I was sitting there with the stuck face, right? <laughs> and so I'm just like, oh. And I didn't have the machinery to talk about it then. But within three months, I was gone, you know, from there. Yeah. Um, eventually, as I grew and wrestled more and more of being, I you know, I was okay with who I was. But then when I eventually left with you at the Methodist church, um, thinking that that might be a better place and that maybe they'd be closer to inclusion, maybe. Um, I realized that I didn't want to, like, I just did like an audit. <laughs> and I said, one, a lot of what I perceived my ministry to be was based on honesty and truth. And I'd be lying to these people. Yeah. Now, a lot of people told me that I was being overdramatic about it. But I would say, okay, what if I went on a date and the right person saw me? I lose my job. They were like, oh, well, yeah. I said, well, then how am, how am I being overdramatic <laughs> if that's the case? Um, and I just had a certain idea what I wanted for my life. I wanted the chance to maybe, you know, I wanted to meet somebody, you know, maybe in a relationship, maybe get married, maybe live together, maybe have a kid, a dog. And I thought it was unfair that I had to put all that on hold just because somebody else didn't figure out that I was qualified. I just didn't think that was fair. Right. Um, I also didn't want to be someone's friend because I was dating somebody in the church at the time. Um, and we actually ended up ending that because he was really, he really wanted to rise to ministry ranks. And I was just like, I'm, I just don't want to, I don't want to be your good friend on the pew for like five, seven years. I just don't or want more. to be, yeah. I, I don't, yeah, I don't want to do that. And, and, and it, that, that's no shade toward him at all. It's just that I didn't want, I didn't, I was like, I just, want, I just don't want that. I don't want to be your buddy for, for however long, you know, my uncle and them lived through that. I don't want to live through that. Um, <laughs> and so I left there <laughs> and then I went to the yeah, Church of Christ and which, which is a more progressive denomination, all of that. But that's when the, the um, institutional junk and the other stuff of ministry snagged me up a bit. Um, you know, just so many other issues that happen, unless it's particularly any one person's fault, just, you know, falling through initiative cracks and things like that. And so my progress stalled um, and just nothing was happening. You know, I was trying to do what I needed to do. And it just, I mean, that's a whole other separate conversation, how ordination is becoming a big issue for a lot of churches because where do you put them? Churches are closing left and right. Um, church, you know, being clergy isn't isn't paying anything. You have the issue. You have too many clergy, or not enough. And so, what do you do? So, um, I eventually, on a professional level, I decided, and I guess we come to this later on when I when I left and when I stopped being a practicing Christian. Part of it was just in terms of professionally, I was like. I, it's like, I'm a, I'm a reasonably intelligent man. I'm still reasonably young. I put forth a lot of effort into progressing in something. And I looked back over 10 years of work and I don't have anything. I need to do something else. Yeah. That's, whew, that, that's quite the awakening. <laughs> wow. So I don't have a long, nice story. Like <laughs> I never really got to the point of trying because when I really tried to get into religion, like when I wasn't being forced to go to church, I was going to church on my own. I I went to a place, the same church that I talked about earlier, and it was very inclusive, at least on the surface. I hope that below that it wasn't a bad place, but there were a lot of 
LGBT people that were involved in that church and not just as volunteers and things of that nature. So I was like, okay, this may be a good place for me to try to figure it out. But I just have so many personal issues with reconciling life in general with religion that I never really got to the sexuality part because it was just, you know, I don't want to get into all of that, but I just had questions that I could not wrap my head around what the answers were or what they could be. And so I just kind of like, well, you know, I learned at a very early age. Well, not very, but I learned early enough in life. I was like, everything is not for everybody. Uh, And I just kind of left it at that. So I don't think we need to spend too much time on actual acceptance because it sounds like you you had no problem collecting your billfold and moving on when things were not what you wanted them to be. So let's talk about progression. And I think you touched on it a little bit, but I want you just to expand a little bit more how your faith or how your beliefs have progressed throughout your life, really, and where you are now. Well, I think while it took a lot of work to get to my understanding that I have now, I think I had some other things in my favor that had nothing to do with me. Okay. Um, and so I think it's important to highlight those. One, like I said, I did not grow up in church. And so there was a lot of things that people are indoctrinated with that they're attached to yes, that, I, that I was not. And so I was totally fine with that. And also I had parents who I don't really know how well they meant this, but they were okay with me asking questions for the most part. Like I was told basically that you can ask questions, you just can't be disrespectful. The problem is, is that usually people find children, particularly black children, and unfortunately even in our own community, when children ask questions, they're viewed as being uppity or disrespectful. Yeah. When honestly, anyone who has common sense, who's observing honestly with no pretense would have this question. Um, (laughs) So um, I had that in my favor, right? So, and that had nothing to do with me. Um, But then also... I think because of that, when I came to the faith on my own, I came because I actually, uh, you know, I'm challenging even this notion, but there was a decent part of it that was my decision. It wasn't forced on me. Like church attendance itself wasn't forced on me. I think faith was forced on me another way, um, but not you got to go and you got to believe, you got to read the Bible type of thing. That wasn't forced. And so because some of it was my decision, it also made it easier for me to put it down. Because I also had the ability to learn about the world and life outside of church, Uh which I think in some ways I'm still limited. I think that what a lot of particularly folks like there and I'm sure you've experienced this, too. It's like it's people who were in church who did all the right stuff, but they still was out there living a life being, quote unquote, in the world. But when I became a person of faith, I really tried to do it. And so there were a lot of things that I missed, like a lot of foreign experiences that people may have had that I did not have. Not that I couldn't have had them, but I gave them up by choice. And so when it came to walking away, that also became a choice. And so I think because of that, because I, the whole world was not wrapped up in church for me, like a whole lot of it was. 
but like I did martial arts, I played tennis, I read comic books, like I did things and understood that there were people that there was a world outside of the four walls. Even though I may have interacted with that world poorly with really bad frames and judgment and whatnot because of my understanding, it was easier for me. Well, I won't say maybe easier is the wrong word because it was still very hard for me. I had more resources to navigate leaving church than a lot of other people do because if you take church Christianity away from them, it's like they don't exist. Right. They just, they don't, Sunday morning is what they live for. Who they are is 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 in Christ. <laughs> like, that's it. And if you take this away, poof, like they literally are dust in the wind. And while it was very hard for me, it wasn't quite like that. So I was able to walk away. Um, but for me, this progression was just being honest. This is about asking myself honest questions and saying, hey, I have this question. Sit with it and really see, like, being honest with yourself and see where you come to. And this is about, I, mean, I came to where I am out of honesty. And this is where I am now. Like, where I am now is honestly where I am. And I look at it as growth, as to be getting here. doesn't mean that everybody will and should get to the point where I am, per se, you know, with me not believing. Um, but you can certainly get to a point where you have a healthier faith. I think a lot of stuff, you can still be a believer and get rid of a whole lot of the unhealthy things that we believe about ourselves and the world around us that we get from church, to be frank. Um, yeah, and so I think just trusting your own process, seeking out information, um, allowing yourself to be challenged by what you find, what you discover, not just ignoring it, letting what you find push you, <laughs> you know what I mean, to some other place. I think those are the things that to keep in mind when you're really trying to progress, particularly when it comes to religion. Okay. Um, I guess... I, I don't know. I sound. I feel like I sound basic because I don't. But I don't have the in-depth experience that you had with religion. I did grow up with it being forced down my throat, um, and I never really felt like I got the teachings that a lot of people get. Like I, I had to go to church. I had to pay attention in church, but it was kind of. I don't want to say half half-assed but it was like i go to church but i don't go to bible study i don't go to children's bible study i don't do anything that really affirms or breaks down what i'm hearing in these sermons and at a young age i'm like i mean i don't know what the hell he's talking about and then as i got older and i understood what he was talking about but i didn't i still didn't have anything tying me to it because it it was just as you said, it was just, it felt like just a Sunday thing or when something bad happens, then we got to pray. And maybe if something good happened, thank God. But there was no in-depth, this is how it applies to every aspect of your life, or this is how you should, and how it should be intertwined in your everyday life. And so when I got old enough to be able to do it on my own and my parents were, you know, was to the point was like, get up for church and I was like no I'm good like 
I'll go on my own. I'm not getting up early to go with y'all. And that was when I really started to try to do that work for myself. And then that was when I come with the roadblocks of, I just, I just, it doesn't, to, to put it simply, I was just, for me personally, it was like two plus two equals hot chew. And that was where I got stuck. And I said, you know, I don't, I didn't feel like there was any, anything to be gained from trying to force myself to, to be religious or understand this religion and, and try to get that feeling that I got, see other people having. And now at this point, I probably would say I'm agnostic at best but i wouldn't particularly call myself spiritual um i do believe in some things but i don't want to get too deep into that uh so i guess that's a kind of a i wouldn't say a natural progression it was just kind of like oh well um ooh, i feel like i walked in you know how in school when you walk into the wrong classroom and you're like ooh. And everybody looks at you and you're like, oh, <laughs> my bad. <laughs> That's kind of how I felt about it. So uh, we could sit here and we could talk about this for a long time. because it, And it's a very interesting topic and just your unique perspective. But I don't want to run too, too long on the time. So based off of everything you said, I'm going to ask one question and then we'll wrap this part of the show up. And that is. In your opinion, what can people do to create a more affirming or create more affirming religious spaces? Um, a few things. The, the one really big thing that I think people need to really embrace is that you is in order for these spaces to change that they're going to have to be forced. And I'm saying this from my experience doing advocacy and organizing around LGBTQ inclusion uh-huh. um, and doing research on it, too. You know, like did doctoral research on it. And so it's something that I know pretty well, um, particularly we're talking about, you know, historically black churches. So talking about like your AMEs, your Kojics and what have you. It's not like people don't know many of the things that I'm saying. Right. It's not as if these people aren't aware. It's not as if. Many, like, say, on a Baptist church or an AME or a whatever, they have to get the same degrees that I get. So it's not that these people aren't incapable of, one, the idea that you need to be this brilliant person to get treating people like human beings is, is really silly to me. But then, two, if you want to go that route, most of these preachers have that advanced education and they still do it. And so... At some point, people are going to have to say enough is enough. And I know you may like that church. I know the music knocks. They have a good word every now and again. <laughs> but if this if this place does not affirm you, you need at some point people need to leave, either leave or raise the stink. Um, and I know that's tough because black church. And I say this in other places too. I think black church has a unique thing because it's one of the few things that is uniquely ours as African-Americans, mm-hmm. you know, between like that and like black Greek organizations, 
like it's ours and it's so much more than yes yes the theology and believing in god but it's where we gather it's where we have fun is where you learn like public speaking is where you got a someone got you a job there it's so much because of how blackness and how yeah. black people it's have a, to navigate you know yeah, it's a community yeah and it's not that it isn't that way for white people but they have way more options yeah. than black people do and so it means that much more but we gotta leave you know um the, the same way we won't go to waffle house or won't go to starbucks it's to say hey listen reverend joe blow was talking about trans folk real while and we had a talk with him and he said he didn't care so we're gonna leave or we're going to write a formal i'm gonna write a letter you know to the denomination i'm gonna do something and yeah. i think just the fact that we're we're not going to nice people into inclusion <laughs> you right. know, and I think just my experience with a lot of bigger name preachers who have sounded like they were being inclusive, but when you look more closely, really are not. Um, at some point, you got to pull their card, just like we're willing to pull the cards of other people. Um, I know that might be tough for us because we have, you know, we have trouble talking with our own folks when they do something wrong, and I'm not saying to throw them out or to you know, throw them away or whatnot. But the fact is, they're going to be fine. Like, you know, the, 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 the preacher who says these hoes ain't loyal over the pulpit, it just made it okay for men to talk about women that way. And that has repercussions. We know that, that, that it does. When the female preacher talks about the lesbians are nasty, we know that has repercussions. And right. so they should be held accountable for those repercussions because we don't get those lives back that are ruined from what you said. We don't get them back. And so I'm not saying they need to be, need to be throwing rocks at their house or whatever, but people need to be held accountable when they do hurtful things. And I think that's the, the step that until more people take that step, it's not going to change. With that said, if you really still want to be involved in church, look for blatantly affirming churches that you know where you see people saying say that we're blatantly we blatantly affirm lgbtq people you know look for those there's particularly in urban areas but even outside of that look around um you'll probably find one near you if not um maybe one has a podcast that you like there's a lot of resources online that you can find on tumblr on twitter um, that are progressive and religious that would help you learn about some things. So maybe you can't go to a progressive church, but you might be able to find, um, you know, um, Bishop Yvette Flunder, who um, has City of Refuge in California. They have stuff. Um, there's lots of preachers uh, and teachers and books, even, that if you look online, if that's your thing, that you can read to have some stuff. Um, but I think just the, the real posture is, I want people to grow to the point where they can say, hey, this is actually harmful and I need to leave. I don't need to engage this. And don't let anyone make you feel that you have to engage harmful anything just because, because no, you don't have to. Um, if you want to use that, that, this language, if you're comfortable with it, God gave you your life for you to steward. And that means you need to take care of it. And taking care of it means you don't allow it to be harmed. By people who don't know how to treat it, which means you can leave. Yeah, they won't. Yeah, they won't die. They might be mad, but they'll get over it. It's fine. You have to be okay with making people annoyed. If if they really care about you, they'll get over it and figure it out. If not, then it's better that you know. But I really, if it were me, I'd have one final punch on it: is to say, at some point, y'all gotta 
key. You don't have to call people out and say, no, hey, I have a gay son. I have a trans friend. I love you, Pastor, but you filed for that. And if you don't change, we're gonna have we're gonna leave, or I'm gonna write a I'm gonna file a complaint, or I'm gonna do something, or or, or, or I'm gonna organize, or just if you can't do all that, just leave. Yeah. Because I think at some point we can't keep supporting them and hoping people don't come around that way. You have to actually get them a reason to change. So I can wrap all of that up by saying, put your foot on their necks that's how change happens like you like you said we can't and it it really applies in all aspects of life where you can look online look on twitter and see the things that are happening and change doesn't happen just because we're nice so it's the same thing with religion with your churches if there are things going on that you don't like and you don't want to leave because i know a lot of people get invested in their church and they feel like it's a staple in their life so they don't want to just pack up and leave but don't be afraid to put your foot on somebody's neck i like that <laughs> <laughs> i mean i mean i'm just being real i mean that that's kind of what and i mean i've been definitely called the angry queer more times than not more times than i like to admit but hey salon you know, said it best i got a right to be mad and yeah, my, yeah and you calling it out is not gonna keep my foot off your neck Mm-hmm. So that's going to wrap up this conversation. Yay! And I want to thank you for really being so open and honest and free with your journey and everything. But now we are going to switch gears entirely and let's get into the queer query. Question. So let's go through these questions real quick and we can get out of here. And this is going to be a geek edition just because I'm very, very curious. Like, I know we are not as familiar with each other. So when someone says, oh, yeah, you know, I like geeky stuff. I'm like, OK, I'm like a a passive geek. I'm like a geek on the on the fringe. So I like when I get to ask someone questions that is a little bit more into it than I or maybe a lot more into it. So first question, who is your favorite superhero? Superman, hands down. Oh. There is there is no question. Like Superman is number one, and their distant number two is Batman. But I like Batman a lot. That shit, I just like Superman that much more. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, wow. So I'm like the opposite. Not the opposite, but it took me a long time to come around to Superman. Like aside from the Lois and Clark show, because I was like young and gay, and I was like, okay, Dean Kane, I see you. I was like, Superman, I was like, you just, you a cheater. Like, how come you can have all the powers? Like, girl, get out of my face. But anyway, my favorite super, it actually varies. I don't know if I really have a favorite favorite. Currently, my favorite superheroes are Thor, just because I'm like on a Thor high still from uh, Infinity War, and Deadpool. Although I don't know if if Deadpool, is Deadpool like an anti-hero? Yeah, I think he'd be like an anti-hero okay. in a way. I mean, I like a wisecracker, so give me give me Deadpool, maybe give me Spider-Man. Uh, I don't know about the current Spider-Man. I'm like, I like what they're doing in the MCU with Spider-Man, but I'm like, I'm, I, I have to reconcile with being at the beginning of the journey because I'm like, I feel like we're so far into it. So to see him still learning how to be a superhero, I'm like, uh, but I'm here for it. Okay, let's move on to the next question. And that is, what was your favorite cartoon growing up? 
Oh God, that's so hard. Um, <laughs> so I, my cartoon heyday was like, you know, the late eighties yes, to the mid nineties. So yes. my dad, actually, my parents are the ones who really watch cartoons. And so I got them from them. So I grew up on like Thundercats yes. and, and Silverhawks and Gummy Bears oh, and, gummy bears. Uh, uh, what else? Oh, Okay, so this is going to be this is <laughs> one of my favorite cartoons was David the Gnome. I don't know if anybody remembers that. I remember that. I used to David the Gnome. I remember but that, that. But it was so it was such a deep cartoon though. I was so like enthralled. Like you know how like they lived for like four hundred years, and when they went in the forest, how they died was that they turned into like a tree or something. Right. And like these storylines were real deep, but I was really engaged in that type of stuff. I really loved it. But uh, but yeah, like stuff like that. And then as time moved on, like, you know, uh, uh, Rescue Rangers and Darkwing Duck and all that stuff. Batman, the animated series, something I still watch today, you Hello. know, like came on. Yeah. Um, I still love cartoons. And of course, like, you know, Dragon Ball Z, when that came on, when no one really knew what it was. <laughs> right <laughs> like that's when i would watch it and so it was really cool and i watched it when they stopped at a certain point in the story but they didn't go any further and so they kept re- they had like 52 episodes yes and then they kept it's, they would start over so you yeah. come home from school one day like okay i'm ready to see what's next and then they went all the way back to the first episode and you're like wait a minute they stopped right when goku lands on namek and he can and he confronts the Ginyu Force, but they don't go any further than they didn't go any further than that for like years until they until they picked up popularity and then they they dubbed it and whatever. And yeah. so we were just stuck. But I watched that; I loved it. Um, so yeah, cartoons were a big part growing up. But I don't out of all those, I say probably gotta say Dragon Ball Z, Batman, Thundercats, um, the Superman cartoon that came on. Justice League was really good. Yeah. Um, all of that so okay my favorite cartoons i kind of split it the same way in the 80s when i was a little boy because i think you and i are probably around the same age um so in the 80s late 80s it was gi joe it was mm-hmm. transformers and it was thundercats like you right. couldn't tell me shit about eating none of those in the 90s my all-time favorite cartoon was x-men the animated series like that was good i did not miss x-men for nothing i don't care what's going on i don't care what chores need to be do i will work around it so that i can watch some x-men except they did gene gray dirty during that whole series yeah gene yeah she gets a raw deal a lot of the times Especially for her to be as powerful as she is. Even without the Phoenix, Jean Grey is a Yeah, beast. even without the Phoenix. I wasn't even thinking about the Phoenix, actually. I'm like, she just... Whatever highest level, because I know there's different, you know, Omegas and level fives, however they... Whatever iteration. I'm like, she's like at the top of every list. So why y'all do her like this? <laughs> to the point now where it's like, you can make a joke about... <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it on like Twitter when they're like whenever someone asks Jean to do something and it's... She faints. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen it. It's true. It's true, though. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, last question and we're going to get out of here. In games with multiple characters to choose from, which character would you normally choose? And so I mean like games where they would have like a muscle guy, they would have a woman, they might have like a skinny, nerdy guy or a regular size slim, muscular. Which character were you choosing? 
Are we talking like a fighting game or something like that? Any game with multi with with different characters to choose from. Could be a fighting game. It could be an RPG. Okay, if it's like an RPG, I'm probably gonna go with like the basic guy. Probably the whoever probably is the star of, of the show, whether they're male or female. That's probably what I'm going to pick. Okay. If it's a fighting game. I usually always pick like the martial arts people, and so like in Street Fighter, I'm picking like Ryu and Ken, all of them, and Mortal Kombat, uh, all the Shaolin people. Oh, I, I play Mortal Kombat X now, you know, and I still always pick like all the Shaolin people, um, Kung Lao, Liu Kang, um, you know, all those folks. Um, Kung Jin, like the um, the the um, the gay cousin of, yeah. of, of Liu Kang, or whatever. I'll, I'll pick all the Shaolin people is what I'll always pick. So. Before I give my answer, it's funny that you say that because I'm looking like I have an old Xbox. And the reason why I got it is because there's this game called Mortal Kombat Shaolin Monks. <laughs> that oh, I, I love that game. That I loved. And I was like, I have to have it. I have to have it. So it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, For me, I, when I was younger, I think I would probably go for the normal size muscular guy or the woman if it was like an adventure game. Um, but as I got older and I started understanding like statistics and everything, I was like, well, who's the well-rounded person? It's usually never the big, the big person. Cause they're slow. Like they're powerful, but slow. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you, you kind of have to balance it. Cause the woman is usually fast, but she's not as hardy, I guess is a good mm-hmm. word for fighting games. Oh man. So two things I want to mention Number one, I remember getting into a fight with a childhood friend of mine about how to say Ryu's name. Like we got into like a full out, not a fist fight, but just a very heated argument because he argued me down that it was Rue. And I'm like, it's R-Y-U, it's Ryu. To this day, I don't know which one. I think it depends on who you ask. I think it's Ryu, Ryu. Yeah, but he was like, no, it's Rue. And I was like, what but he was adamant about it um and then fighting i i don't know i i don't know who i would pick i guess because the other thing was growing up playing video games i kind of bowed out a lot from fighting games because shit got real like you think about black people and how shit gets real when, when they start playing spades or dominoes. That's how it was for like me and my brother and my cousins playing fighting games. Like m- my brother and I, even though he's way younger than me, we had to come to a point where we had to make a pact that we weren't going to play games where we had to play against each other. Like if it was a fighting game where we had to fight each other, we, we just wouldn't play because it would get that real controllers getting thrown and harmful things being said. And it was just very unhealthy. So shout out to us for being young and, and knowing, you know, knowing our limits and being like, okay, you know, you're my brother and I love you. So, and I don't want to have to beat your ass because you beat my ass in this fighting game. So, Oh, we didn't, mm -mm. we didn't have that in in the right household. We were very, (laughs) we were very competitive. We were competitive too, but my parents actually played video games, and so that's how I got into it. And so they had like Atari and Nintendo. Listen, shout out to your parents because yeah. they they seem lit. And so they um they I would play with them, and they would never let me win. 
they said I have to earn it on my own. And so eventually I did. And my dad is the one who played Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter, and he taught me how to play. And so, again, he never let me win until eventually I got better, and then he stopped playing. And so I guess part of it is because I was – I mean, I was never, like, you know, professional at it, but I generally was the the better, if not the best at the game, at the people who I knew. Like, I would go to, like, the, the convent – like, to the arcades – at the um, six packs or whatever, and like play older people and like win money. <laughs> so okay. I, I never really like I I, I was again I, I'm not not that like I would go and beat people now, but like for the time and the people who I was around, I was usually pretty good. So I didn't really have to worry about oh well we're winning as I would usually that would be me. <laughs> but then um, I yeah I just I liked the competition of it and the fighting part of it, and so I got really good at both of them. And you know that was when arcades were a big deal, so. It took a lot of effort to get good at those games. You had to like go and wait and put your quarter on the machine to get your turn and stuff. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, that is that's very interesting. So, listen, your parents are they looking to adopt? <laughs> I think they're past that. Now. I am available. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just I think saying. the window for that the window for that is closed. <laughs> I mean, closed mouths don't get fed, okay? Okay. Anyway, that is going to wrap up this episode of Gay Side Stories, you guys. Again, Verdell, thank you so, so much for being on the show. And let people know where they can find you. Well, I should have a website by now, but I don't. So, well, yeah. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at uh, V.W. And the, the letter V, it's V D O T. W. Um, you can find me on Twitter. You can look up my name and see the stuff that I've written. Um, one day I have a website um, when I stop procrastinating, but until then, that's where <laughs> you can find me. Okay. Uh, you guys know where to find me. Go to GaySideStories.com for more information, links, everything that you need for the show is at that address. If you want to get in touch with me, if you're interested in being on the show, if you want to collaborate, if you want me on your show, you can email me at GaySideStories at gmail.com. Twitter, Instagram, GaySideStories, Facebook.com slash GaySideStories. The show is in all kinds of different places, but if you happen to listen on Apple Podcasts and you like what you hear, please take a few minutes to go and write a five-star review. If you want to just leave a rating, that's great too, but I do appreciate the people that actually write a review. Make sure you're sharing the show with other people. Word of mouth is still probably one of the best ways that podcasts grow. Um, Sharing it on your social media is good too. It's pretty much the same thing. Um, But sometimes just telling someone, hey, listen to this podcast. It works too. Thank you again for listening. And as always, you guys, make sure that you are protecting all of your walls. I don't just mean the ones that are between your butt cheeks. And with that, we are out of here.